Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Reda Amalu, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Well, thank you, Mark, for having me here. I'm excited about this. You're based in Paris. You're the founder and partner of AW2, an international architecture and interior design agency, doing lots of beautiful architecture, And the thing that I want to talk about is your luxury architecture, the hospitality architecture, and primarily the focus that you have on bringing sustainability to that luxury architecture. It sounds like a complicated thing to do. And so I'd love to have that conversation. But before we do that, I would love to hear your story, your story as an architect, your origin story. So what I'd like you to do is go back as far as you want to go back and share your story about when you discovered your passion for architecture and maybe even who or what inspired you to become an architect? I wasn't passionate about architecture as a teenager. I became completely sort of passionate about it after a a few years of studies. I was hoping to be doing more art studies, but I finally sort of joined architecture. And I think that the big change was one, well, actually two persons who were my diploma tutors in London, because I'm a French national from Algerian origin, but I studied in London in the UK. So, And that was uh, Eleni Gigandis and Elias Engedis, who were both my tutors during my diploma years. And they sort of gave me 
this thing that, I mean, that taught me that architecture was something that needed to be joyful and that you should transmit that sort of joy of space and, and buildings and cities to others to be a great architect. Do you know, or do you remember, because you said that you loved art and that your first passion was to be an artist and you decided to pursue architecture. Do you have a, an idea of how that transition happened? What inspired you to go from art to architecture rather than pursuing art? Well, it, probably because I wasn't sure of what I wanted to do at first. Sure. And then basically sort of the family sort of pushed me more towards the real job, which was being an architect. And in the end, I was sort of almost for like saying, okay, well, that will do. It's fine. Sure. So it sort of happened in a funny way. I have lots of architect friends who tell me that they want, always wanted to be architects from the age of three. Not the case for me. I sort of became really sort of passionate about it during my studies in architecture. So you studied in London, inspired by some mentors, graduated at university in London. What did you do after you graduated? I worked for other firms small firms in the UK. And then I came to Paris and started working. Also, I worked for a, a number of years, well, four or five years at a Paris-based practice with Gérard Thurnoer at, at the time. And then I basically came to a point where I decided that I needed to sort of try it on my own and started the business. What brought you to Paris? Family reasons only. And also, well, to be honest, I've always liked traveling and being abroad. And although I'm a French national, I had never lived in France up until the age of 28. So yeah. uh, when I moved here, it was almost like going to a new country for me. So it was like being not a foreigner in a foreign, well, in a really weird way. So it was quite interesting, actually. Taking the leap to start your own business is a big decision. You worked for another firm. What was your inspiration to start your own practice? <sighs> the freedom that I was hoping to get. And also the idea that I had my own sort of thing to express. So it was more of a personal thing than a business decision, to be honest. And actually, for the real thing is that the first 10 years was, were not a good business decision. I should have stayed on. <laughs> so what, you struggled in the beginning. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. But I think everyone does. I, yes, I think, it's very common for architects. Yeah. I think it's part of the business. And I think that going through these years is very formative. It's something that sort of creates your backbone. The amount of things you learn in those first years is tremendous. I mean, it's like going back to university again and getting a new diploma again. So it was both, you know, tough years, but also very exciting years because everything was possible. What changed? So the first 10 years was a struggle. Today, clearly not you know, in terms of your presentation, the work that you do, the business is thriving. What was the change? What did you discover in order to make that shift from struggling to a successful firm? Well, it's probably the same for most of us. You realize that to create a portfolio of built work under your name takes 10 years. <laughs> True. Because architecture is a slow business. You know, to build your first sort of real project takes a minimum of five years from start of design to finishing. And five years is actually quite good going. So yes. those first 10 years are both 
a struggle, but not in a bad way. They're in struggle because financially it's not easy. But the reality is that they are very exciting years and they're very sort of, they create that sort of base upon which you can build the rest of the career of the firm, which is great. What was the timeline to get to the type of work that you do today? Because your firm is designing the most innovative, the most beautiful hotels, right? The most prestigious properties in the world, literally. Uh, and some of them in the most remote areas of the planet. So how do you get from starting from scratch to designing that type of work? What was the timeline in terms of sort of taking different types of projects and meeting different kinds of clients to get to the point where you design the type of work that you do today? If I have to count a number of years, probably 12 to 10 to 12 years. But you also need people that will trust you right. to get there. And the first ones that trusted us to bring a, a hospitality project for which we had zero references in reality at the time, and then to do this project and then to spend your days and nights and weekends designing it with your team and creating something which in the end becomes, well, an important hotel in Vietnam, which was the first one we did, which today is a Four Seasons Nam Hai. And that changed the game, clearly. But you need those for this first client that will trust you to bring it home. How did you make the connection with that client in order to get that project? Basically, very simple. We sort of got to know each other from another project that I was doing in Vietnam at the time, which was the first large commission that we had got in the firm, which was a hospital in Ho Chi Minh City in Saigon. And they were also working on the same project as financial advisors. And then they moved on to create their own fund and open their first hotel. And they asked me to sort of go on with them. So I did take risks because yeah. we didn't know if the thing would happen really or not, but it did. So that was great. Today, you're working with Champagne Hospitality. If you go to the Champagne Hospitality website, you literally see the most prestigious hotels in the world. And you're bringing sustainable luxury to that, right? You're bringing sustainability to those projects. They mentioned that as well on their website. It's something that is part of their brand. It's not just luxury and beauty and experience and all the things that come with luxury hotels, but they're very committed to the sustainability, not only environmentally, but culturally and the history of the places. How are you doing that? What are you bringing to those projects that can help them achieve those goals? Well, I think what's really exciting about our path over the last 25 years that AW2 has been around is that having worked in over 40 different countries and having sort of been confronted with different habits, cultures, climates, we have now created almost like not a design signature, but an approach to how we look at projects. And the first element of that approach is what we call the context. So today, this word is used very much throughout. We've been using it for 20 years. But the whole idea about context is to understand where you're building, why you're building, with what are you building, and for whom are you building. So these might be very simple questions for, or seem like simple questions, but I think some of us have forgotten that we need to put those questions forward when we start designing. And because we were working in places where the means to build, the ability to find resource 
was not easy. It pushed us to the limits of saying, okay, what is available? What can we do with this? And then this sort of led onto this idea, and we were still doing luxury by doing that. You know, one of the first hotels we did was a timber frame structures like 20 years ago, or well, you know, 15 years ago. And everyone at the time in Vietnam would tell us, well, that's not luxury. Timber frame is for countryside houses. We need luxury. We want, you know, stone. We want. I said, no, 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 we'll do it in timber. And in the end, it really worked. So what's interesting about doing this with champagne hospitality is that they allow us to have this approach in areas of the world where we could actually do things more the way they are done, but they want to be pushed to these places where luxury is not about what you see, but it's about what you take from it. It's about the real, true experience that you get from the architecture, from the place, from the service, from the people. And I think the idea of luxury is moving towards something which has more in tune with our world and with where you are. And I strongly believe that this is the case more and more. And this is what we want to do. This is where we want to be. We want to be where this kind of luxury is. You said earlier when I asked you about your business and your progression to where you are today that much of it came from trust, clients and trusting you. It sounds also that very much of the work that you do today is built on trust, that these companies, these investors are trusting you to design those types of projects and giving you the freedom to explore those opportunities that they may not have had in their head originally, but letting you sort of take them on the journey. Is that true? Completely. And we have to have clients that are willing to sort of listen. And we have to be architects that are also listening. <laughs> the whole thing is that it's all about... And again, because we've worked in so many places with so many different cultures, the way you approach a project in a different culture puts a certain distance between you and the project. But this distance doesn't put you further from the project. It actually gets you... It's, it's almost like... It's distance of respect. So you listen more. So you try and learn more. So you make sure you get it right. Yeah. So I think this is what's interesting about the whole process. And with Champagne Hospitality, what is interesting is that, of course, they challenge us and they push us and they tell us, you know, this is where we want to reach, but how do we get there? And how to get there can't be just a gimmick. It can't be just something which is a calculation of how much we're going to be consuming energy and things. Not enough. You know, what do I get out of it? What is the meaning of all this? You know, when my guests are in the hotel, what are they going to take back from this experience? You know, what are they going to remember? And I think this is where you can make a difference with architecture is where you create this emotion, this thing which you can't quantify really, but is there. Yes, I agree. I think the experience and the emotion that comes from architecture is a big part of what we do as architects just as important as the built work that comes from the work that we do. Definitely. And every one of us as architects and most people will remember walking into a building that has sort of awed them or wowed them, but in a way where it's sort of, it's in your belly, if I can use that word. Right. <laughs> Something which is not rational. It's much more than that. And I think this is really critical and what we should get back into architecture. This is what is exciting about architecture. It's this thing that sort of puts you in a different space. 
Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Accurate data is crucial, especially in today's business environment. Outdated and inaccurate data leads to turnarounds, delays, and rising costs. With supply chain and staffing issues, these costs and delays can multiply. That's why a resource like RCAT.com is so important. RCAT works with manufacturers to keep their data up to date and accurate and offers it to you easily accessible and free. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find what you need fast and download it right there on their site without needing to pay for anything. It's free. You don't even have to register. So go try RCAT.com today. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Unlock your full potential as an architect business owner at Entree Architect Network. Since 2013, Entree Architect has been the premier membership community designed exclusively for small firm entrepreneur architects like you. Join a vibrant community of like-minded professionals and gain access to a wealth of resources, mentorship, and support. From comprehensive courses to expert guidance, Entree Architect Network equips you with the necessary tools to thrive in your career. Master business strategies, enhance your marketing techniques, and excel in project management, all while fulfilling your continuing education requirements along the way. Break free from the isolation and connect with a supportive network that understands the unique challenges that you face as an architect business owner. Whether you're a startup architect or a seasoned professional looking to make a difference, join us and we will help you elevate your career, boost your confidence, and unlock opportunities for your architecture firm. When our community of entrepreneur architects is linked and leveraged as one, there's no limit to the impact that we can have on the world. Visit EntreeArchitect.com today and become part of our thriving network. Unleash the full potential of your architecture business. Join Entree Architect Network today, the premier global business organization for small firm architects. Learn more at EntreeArchitect.com. What are some of the things that you're doing in terms of sustainability that sets these projects apart from a typical luxury development? Well, I think one of the things that we try and accomplish every time is that we always look at our projects as a completely sort of holistic element. So our idea of context has been sort of, we have this sort of almost sundial that we have in the office, which says that, you know, context is what feeds the idea and creates the project. And that context takes in, so we have actually sort of charted the easy ones, which is, you know, the climate, the geography, the economics of a project, the brief, but also the resource, what materials are available on site, what are the craftsmen that we can tap into? What are the crafts that used to be here, but not present anymore? And how can we get them back in? You know, what is the traditional way of building and why did they build this way? Because there's so much intelligence in those buildings because they didn't rely on technology to resolve their problems. They had to rely on walls and roof and windows. And how do they make those? Why are the openings bigger on this side than this side of the building? Why is the, why are the walls 
in timber, whereas here they're using stone. And so all these elements are cues that are given to you as an architect. And this is what we want to read. And then when we design, not only we, we want to use those cues, but we want to express them. We want to give meaning because we want people to understand what we're doing right. and to tap into the sustainability, not as something which is just maths and calculations, because it's great if we're not using energy and things, but it's not enough in my opinion. It's also about the meaning of it all. So for example, in the project we're doing in St. Bart's, one of the big questions with Champagne Hospitality was air conditioning, because it's one of the sort of key elements where we're consuming energy. So we're doing a sort of uber luxury resort, and we know we can't do away with air conditioning. You can't take it out. But if you explain to people that your buildings are designed in a way where you can let through ventilation in your room and bathroom, and that you can actually lower the temperature of your room naturally with the sea breeze going through the room and creating a beautiful sort of natural sort of climate condition in your room, will they do it or won't they do it? Well, some people will. Yeah. And some people will really enjoy it. So we're not on a crusade. We don't want to convince everyone, but the more people we actually explain how we do things and the more they understand how this is done, then I think the more we get the meaning through. Yes. And that's interesting because not only are the buildings and the developments sustainable and the guests experience that for themselves, but they're inspired right? That they were living in this ultra luxury environment and it's sustainable. Well, maybe I can go home and go do that at home, right? And so they're inspired to pursue that on their own. That's exactly the point. That's exactly where we want to be. And I think the whole challenge of sustainability is all about creating examples or creating demonstrations of how it is meaningful and how it, it is also enjoyable because, you know, sitting in a room which is naturally ventilated and the sea breeze going through is actually quite nice. Right. It's part of the experience, right? Exactly. Exactly. And it's something that they will remember. Exactly. Sitting in that space with air conditioning is a totally different experience than opening the windows and having the doors open and having that sea breeze come through and feeling just as comfortable. And that becomes the odors and the fragrances from the sea and the humidity and the temperatures become part of the experience that they take home with them. And this is in terms of designing hospitality projects and specifically with the Champagne Hospitality Project in St. Bart. This is one layer, but the other layer is the contact with the outdoors, how we create openings, how we view the gardens outside, how the nature is taken very close to the buildings because it cools down the temperature around the building and it creates shade, how we open the views towards the sea. And then how we choose our materials, how they are assembled together. So it's like layers and layers that we try and, and gently sort of add on to our project and design that give that sort of strength to the project and core to the project. And I think it's like that French cake, the millefeuille. You need to go through all the leaves of that thing to get the real taste. <laughs> right, right, exactly. You've been working with Champagne for a long time. This is our first project with them. Oh, so it's first project. All right. But you've been doing luxury projects for a long time. Yes, for a long time. But it's exciting because ever since we started with them on this project, they've sort of, it's interesting to see how they want to see this sort of push to the edge. 
Yeah. Because that's why I asked if it's been a long time, because you have the trust of them to do those things. Yeah. What I wanted to ask, and I could still ask the question is, is who led the mission of sustainability? Did they come to you with this idea that we want to do sustainable luxury? Or did they come to you with this idea of we want to create an amazing place, the most prestigious properties in the world, and you brought the sustainability to them? They came to us with a clear mission saying, we want to create the best hospitality project and the most sustainable hospitality project in the Caribbean or wider than that. Yeah. And you've been doing it for so long. They found a perfect architect. Exactly. (laughs) We've been doing for a bit of time. Yes. So I think that's how we got in there. And that's what the initial discussions that we had were interesting because, because our approach was more about understanding why they set their target. What was the idea behind this? Because I think this is where sustainability makes sense because they, Champagne Hospitality have been in St. Bites for a number of years. I mean, 30 years, I believe, or, or more. So it's a community thing as well. It's about people. It's about being in that community. It's about creating an example for the others as well as creating a unique project. So I think this, this is what creates also a sort of ecosystem for the project, which is really sort of potent. Yeah. I've, and this is going to take us maybe in a little different direction, but as I'm talking to you, I'm realizing that recently I've been talking to several architects that do very high-end architecture. You know, I'm 53 years old, so I've been doing this a long time, and I've been talking to architects for a long time, and I'm seeing a shift that I just recognized in talking with you from an architect who comes in with their approach and their ideas. And if you want to work with me, we're going to do it my way. And if you don't like it, you can go find somebody else to a much different approach where, and I've, and you said earlier that one of the keys to your success was listening and how important listening is. I just had a conversation earlier today, probably the episode before this, same thing, doing high-end residential architecture and his key to success is listening to the client and respecting them, right? And wanting to understand who they are, what their priorities are, what their focus is, what their personal missions are. And then you can create pieces of architecture that help support that. That's a very different approach than the architects from 20, 30 years ago. Totally. But I think it's a shift in most areas of our societies. Agreed. The difference technology has made in the last 10, 15 years, or basically ever since the iPhone started, is that bespoke has become a daily thing. (laughs) True. You know, I want to eat exactly this at that time. I want this t-shirt exactly in this color. And if I'm buying my sneakers, I want them with these stripes and this logo and my name on the right shoe and this on the left shoe. So everything's becoming sort of more and more sort of tuned to the person himself. And architecture is the same. We don't deliver sort of packaged ideas and designs. We have to deliver things that are exactly sort of designed for the purpose for which they're made and for the site on which we're building and for the people we're targeting. I think I think it's a shift worldwide. But for us and in architecture, what's interesting is I think it actually gives architecture a lot more meaning Agreed. to do so. Yeah, I think we actually design better architecture, right? Because we are listening. Exactly, 100%. Yeah. And it's very interesting, that whole idea 
of how architects at the very high end have shifted in terms of their approach and out of necessity, right? Out of a business necessity. If you don't do it that way, you're not going to be hired because that's how our clients think now. Very, very interesting. And also the fact that most clients want true bespoke products. They don't want a repeat product. They don't want something which has been sort of copied and pasted and seen many times. Yeah. It's really a part of, of what we offer. And it's a very strong part of what we do. Yeah. If you want to learn more about AW2, the website's simple, aw2.com. You can go check out all the beautiful work they do. Rada also designs furniture, right, Rada? Yeah, I do. But it's, it's sort of has been sort of a natural thing because we work at different scales. We do master planning, architecture, interiors, and we were designing our own furniture. So in the mm. sort of created sort of our own brand of furniture, which so we work for brands and we edit our own furniture. RadaAmalu.com is a website to go check out the furniture as well. Before we wrap up, Rada, I would like to ask you the question that I ask all my guests. We are being listened to by thousands of architects, primarily business owners, people who have started their own firms and are building their own firms. You've done that. You've started from scratch and have built it into a very successful architecture firm. What would you say is the one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? This is a tough question, but I think probably the one thing that has always been sort of driving us here is that we try and do less things, but better every time and go back at it and try and achieve better. Don't try and sort of spread on many, many different subjects, but concentrate on where you're good and make it great. Yeah. Focus on your strengths. Yeah. Yeah. Reda Amalu is his name. It's R-E-D-A-A-M-A-L-O-U. The firm is aw 2 and the website, again, is aw2.com, radaamalu.com for the furniture. Rada, thank you. Thanks for coming by, sharing your story. Very inspiring story. Beautiful architecture. I appreciate you for coming by and sharing your knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a five-star rating Write a quick review and share a link to this episode with a friend because that is how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands more architects just like you. By sharing a rating, write a review, share a link to this episode with a friend. I appreciate you for that. Thank you to all our sponsors for this episode, RCAT and Entree Architect Network. Links to sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode and every episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. You can now earn continuing education credits for listening to this podcast. Select episodes of Entree Architect Podcast are approved for AIA continuing education credit. Learn more about our new Gable Members program at gablemedia.com slash members. That's G-A-B-L media.com slash members. Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage. Love, learn, and go share what you know.
I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.